Hello, and welcome to the recap by Dive Collective. Over the next few minutes, we're going to hit the highlights of the past week's reading from our reading plan. Annika and I, and sometimes Kelly, are excited to invite you along as we read through the Bible together. You can find our reading plan at divecollective.org in our shop under free downloads. We know some of you love the accountability of a checklist, while others thrive by the freedom to join in whenever your schedule allows. The recap is intended to meet all of those needs. So whichever one of those categories you fit into, just know we're excited to have you here today. Okay, so starting in Exodus, we've come to the end of the plagues. They are in the desert trying to figure out how to navigate life now in the middle of nowhere with this new leader, Moses. And Moses is trying to figure out how to navigate leadership. So chapter 18, speaking of Jethro, that's one of my favorite scenes in this portion of scripture because I just, I love Jethro's role. I love that he comes kind of out of nowhere. He's obviously been a mentor to Moses while Moses Mm -hmm. left Egypt and went into the wilderness. And (laughs) Moses has grown tremendously. He's done signs and wonders and he's hearing from God and he's got a relationship where he speaks to God face to face. And Jethro comes and he sees everything that's going on. Moses is trying to take care of hundreds of thousands of people and hear all of their cases and make good judgments. And Jethro is watching all of this and he's like, whoa, 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 Moses. My Bible version is the message again. So he says, you'll burn Mm -hmm. out and the people right along with you. This is way too much for you. You can't do this alone. Now listen to me and let me tell you how to do this so that God will be in this with you. And so then he goes about telling him how to kind of break the mound down into essentially countries, states, cities, towns, so that they have, they each have leadership over them. And then Moses only has to see or hear like the biggest, most complicated cases. And um, Moses listened to him. He says that he listened to the counsel of his father-in-law and did everything he said. I don't know. The humanity of Moses in that stands out to me. And I really like mm. that, that he's he's hearing from God directly, but he's also accepting the counsel of people he knows to be wise. And Jethro was wise and knew God, you know, he, and he was supportive of Moses and that. I love that. And then I also love that Jethro is seeing this man who's leading hundreds of thousands of people. He's got this leadership, notorious, famous position. And Jethro comes in and he's like, I see you need help in this one thing and I'm going to help you in this one thing. And then he leaves. Like he doesn't mm-hmm. say like, oh, you're going to need me in this. And I'm going to, I ha- I could have a really um, important role in your being your wise counsel. There's no lingering pride in it for him. Mm-hmm. And I just, the humility in that is precious to me. I just really love that passage a lot. So that's one of the highlights from Exodus for me. And then also I wrote a little bit about this. I'm sure it'll pop up in one of our blog posts, but how Moses has to go into the darkness and the darkness is where God is. You see that in scripture a lot. Ann Voskamp writes in her book, 1000 Gifts, a picture that has stuck with me forever, which is how God hides Moses in the cleft of the rock while his glory passes by, that his glory is closest when Moses is in complete darkness. And then when he comes out of the darkness, he sees kind of God's presence from behind. Even in these passages that I just recently read, (laughs) Moses and these leaders go up onto this mountain and God is standing on sapphire, like in their very presence. They are actually in the presence of God eating 
Yeah. And then, and then Moses calls him far, farther up. I think I should probably look to see where that is. Um, it's in, that's one of my 24, I, I think. Yep. It's 24. Starting nine through 11. Nine. Yeah. Yeah. That's obviously a highlight just that mm-hmm. Moses gets to be in the presence of God and over and over Moses gets to be in the presence of God. So many over times. and over yeah. and over. And This makes me think of Job, so we can probably jump to Job here fast. He goes into these dark clouds to be in his presence, and now when Job's, and then we're going to see that when God speaks to Job, both times it says he's talking to him, the eye of a storm. Or the whirlwind, yeah. Why don't we jump to Job? Unless you have, do you want to talk about anything from Exodus? You probably do. The two things that I underlined in Exodus have to do with food, which is really funny. But (laughs) for real though, like that, 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 um, the reason I underlined them here is because I've been underlining them all the way through because anytime, I think it is so interesting how God uses meals in the lives of his people for rejoicing all of the festivals and stuff that the Jews have there surrounded by food and feasting for mm-hmm. remembering the Passover and then communion yes. and describing himself as the bread of life and just all the ways that God uses something that's a necessity to bring joy in the lives of his people and also to just reveal himself even more and to create community. Anyway, food does so many things and you know me, I love food. So that's just something that stuck out to me in Exodus and in that one of the places it stuck out was in that scene we were just talking about when they're up on the mountain and God is there. So they're, they're up there in the presence of God and they see, it says, God did not harm the Israelite nobles. They saw him and they ate and drank. They're doing something so normal in the presence of God and how, I don't know. I just love that picture of God's presence being there in the everyday, but then thinking about it too, in the sense of feasting, being rejoicing, because they do that so often as God is giving them the law. He's setting up all of these feasts and holy days and the purpose of those feasts is always to point them back to God. Always to remember. Mm-hmm. And to remember, yeah, and to rejoice. So it just sticks out to me anytime God's word talks about food. Passover is just coming up again and again. Mm-hmm. There's the actual Passover that happens right as they get into the desert. He's like, do this again mm-hmm. every year. Mm-hmm. And then we're seeing it again in this chapter. And then we're going to see it, the final actual Passover lamb in Luke. Anyway, we'll get we'll get to all of that, yeah. but it's just I want to point out that what you're saying is that marking of that feast in particular is yeah. the theme. It is a major theme that mm-hmm. we can't miss in all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like there were a lot of ties this week between the three books. Among mm-hmm. the three books. Yes. So going on to Job, I think there's going to be honest. I yeah. still kind of love Elihu. <laughs> I don't don't hate the guy. He says some good stuff. I know. And I think it's so funny to me because I remember I was, as I was editing last week's podcast, I was thinking of like, when you said he's, um, he's right. Like Job's not perfect. And I'm like, but Job is like as perfect as it gets this side of heaven. Like he doesn't like, it's true. He doesn't necessarily deserve what he's getting. Right. And um, anyway, this morning as I was showering I was listening to a passion song that came on and it said the words were I just I like they came on out of the blue and I was like oh my word Lord you're so amazing but it says um I will stop all negotiations with the God of all creation you're way bigger than I knew like Mm -hmm. you are like you're way you're way bigger than I knew and that is 
that is Job right here. And just that idea that, yes, he's as righteous as they came, but he had nothing to negotiate with. God. There was nothing like you can't negotiate with God when you right. are human because you have nothing to bring to the table. Right. Because all of that righteousness doesn't matter. It doesn't matter without right. the gospel. Yeah. Right. You're unholy. You, yeah. as, as a human without the gospel, you remain unholy with yeah. nothing to bring to the relationship with God. But I still am not a huge fan of Elihu. He's a loud mouth and he is a loud mouth full of and himself. he's a very big know-it-all. Yes. <laughs> I agree. But he says some stuff um, that I'm like, well, you have a point there, buddy. Yeah. I would not want to argue with him. I don't think. Right. 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 So Job speaks to God for the last time a few chapters ago, and then Elihu mm -hmm. talks for a really long time. And then it says, and finally, God answered Job from the eye of a violent storm. That in itself is key because again, like we're talking about like so often when God is most present, when he's talking to us, it's in the midst of total chaos. When all of life is chaotic, it's almost like life has to be chaos because that's how we know God's present. Because it's the exact opposite of chaos. When God speaks, it's in the midst of a storm because it is such a different, it is peace, it is calm, it is okay, there is, like it is control. You know, when everything mm -hmm. else is chaos, God is control. Like he is in control, he is all of those things. So God speaks to him from a storm. I think God actually says like, gird up your Lloyds like a man and I will mm -hmm. speak to you. And I just love that passage. I am God, you are not, you listen mm -hmm. to me stop talking and listen to me for a minute. And then God just goes on and on. And I just, he talks about who he is and what he's created. And he asks them, were you there when, mm -hmm. um, can you find your way to where lightning launched? I love that. Um, who took charge of the ocean when it gushed forth like a baby from the womb? That was me. I wrapped it in soft clouds and tucked it in safely at night. Then I made a playpen for it, a strong playpen. So it couldn't run loose and said, stay here. This is your place. Your wild tantrums are confined to this place. And so he's just talking about all that he is. Another passage that I love, verses 13 to 18. The ostrich flaps her wings futilely, all those beautiful feathers, but useless. She lays her eggs on the hard ground, leaves them there in the dirt, exposed to the weather, not caring that they might get stepped on and cracked or trampled by some wild animal. She's negligent with her young, as if they weren't even hers. She cares nothing about anything. She wasn't created very smart, that's for sure. <laughs> wasn't given her share of good sense. But when she runs, oh, how she runs, laughing, leaving horse and rider in the dust. That, to me, was just a picture of, like, God's joy. All these little things that he did, that he knows, that he did on purpose, that mm -hmm. um, don't maybe make sense to us, but... But I know, I know why I did it. And I know the joy that I get in mm -hmm. these, all of these things, all of these tiny little details. He's just, I know, I know, I know I'm in control. I'm in control. I'm in control. And so Job's first answer to God is beautiful. Like there's no other words for it. It's just beautiful. I'm speechless in awe. Words fail me. I should never have opened my mouth. I've talked too much, way too much. I'm ready to shut up and listen. That's kind of how it happens. At least it does for me. Like when nothing's making sense and I'm in excruciating pain and it's me, 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 me. And I'm in despair. Basically, I'm in a place of total and complete despair. I talk about this in, in the Bible study that I wrote for Lydia, which is not out yet. But I talk about this portion of Job specifically because I see a pattern in the Psalms and 
in my life, we go from despair to lament. Really, when Job sp started speaking to God, that's when it transitioned into lament for Job, I think. I think that despair is that idea that life is just awful, and we talk about it uh, with anybody who will listen, but we don't really talk to God about it. He's not the audience. And then God, my favorite part about Job then saying, speaking directly to God is that I feel like that's the transition. When God, when Job calls out to God and speaks to him directly about his troubles and how he feels, God answers. That is consistent with his character. When we cry out to God, he hears us. That is a, that is a promise that we can count on. That is, that is a part of his personality trait that we can believe in. And that is a huge promise. I mean, that's an incredible promise that if nothing else, if we don't get any other, I mean, we do get all of the other promises, but if there's nothing else, just to know that if we direct our cries to God, he hears us. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Like that's monumental. And then I love it. So once Job cries out to God, God responds by reminding him who he is and what he's done. That's when Job's attitude shifts. And Job is like, I have spoken too much. Tell me more. And my heart is surrendered and I'm ready to hear. What do you have to say to me? And then God goes on and tells him more about all that he's done, all that he's created, what he is. He is control. He is in charge. He knows what he's doing. Again, it's, he says that he confronted him directly. Job answers God and then God addressed Job next from the eye of the storm. So again, he's speaking to him in the midst of his chaos. And then Job answers God. And uh, I believe this is where the Bible has it labeled, God restores Job, starting in verse 7 through 8. But I think the restoration happens here when Job has a right perspective on who God is. I'm convinced you can do anything and everything. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You asked, who is this muddying the water, ignorantly confusing the issue, second guessing my purposes? I have this underlined just because I love that he's talking about plans and purposes. And that is, in a nutshell, I mean, if we were to wrap up the things that we can trust God for, it's that he has good plans and he has good purposes. Mm -hmm. Nothing and no one can upset your plans. You asked, who is this muddying the water, ignorantly confusing the issue, second-guessing my purposes? I admit it, I was the one I babbled on about things far beyond me, made small talk about wonders way over my head. You told me, listen, and let me do the talking. Let me ask the questions. You give me the answers. And that's what God was saying to Job. You give me the answers. Now Job says, I admit, I once lived by rumors of you. Now I have it all firsthand from my own eyes and ears. This is where Job basically is saying, I now know that I know that I know that I know God. He's saying, I, I have now experienced you in full. All of these things that I thought that I believed about you, all of these things that I said I knew about you and I've talked about you in rumors, now I now I know you. Now I've experienced you. And um, he says, I'm sorry, forgive me. I'll never do that again. I promise I'll never again live on crusts of hearsay, crumbs of rumor. And I think that's the way that all of our faith evolves. We go from learning about who God is and believing that we know who God is to the extent that we've heard about him and we've gleaned our faith from other people. But there comes a time of brokenness. I think for a lot of people, maybe not everybody, I, well, I don't know. I don't know how you, anybody goes through life without any brokenness, but I think that it's in brokenness that we say and discover that everything that we were taught about him, everything that we thought we knew about him, it's confirmed and more. All of those things are true, but also we experience him and his mm -hmm. presence and then we know him and our faith crystallizes. Our personal. 
yeah, it becomes, it becomes a real thing that we can like almost grasp and hold on to. I now know that I know that I know God. And if you can hold on, if you have that, that's the gift that Peter talks about in first Peter. Mm. Um, of greater worth than gold. And so then it goes on and it says that God restores Job and God gives him back a family and he gives him back all of these things. But the true restoration of Job, I believe, happens when knows that he knows that he knows God. That is of greater worth than gold. And when Peter says that, all of these things that he gets back are great, but nothing is equal to a very real knowledge of God. And that relationship being restored too. All right, let's move on to the New Testament. So I want to say one thing about Job. I've said before, like these passages in Job, when God speaks are some of my favorite in all of scripture. But Mm -hmm. I was thinking about it from a different angle when I read it this time, because so as I was reading it this time, I was noticing just like the beauty of the poetry like just the writing. Mm-hmm. And I was writing some stuff for the website yesterday and I was thinking about how the collective and how we want people to be able to use their gifts. And so I'm thinking so I'm thinking through all of this and I'm thinking about how God is listing all of these things, all of his creation that he made. And it's all like evidence for him, really. It's evidence for how we know God and why we should trust God. Mm-hmm. And then like my train of thought is just kind of going. And I'm thinking, okay, well, he doesn't talk about people. Like he doesn't talk about creating people, but I know that he did. And I know that he created us in his image. So I'm thinking about God speaking and this beautiful poetry and all these incredible things that he created that he's talking about in this poetry. And I'm thinking about how we as people were made in his image. We reflect our creator by creating things. Mm-hmm. He has put this same, he's put this same joy, delight. Yes, like he delights that, in his yeah, creation. Yeah, that desire to mm-hmm. do things and for beauty, that acknowledgement and appreciation for beauty that is in God. Because mm-hmm. obviously, like, look at what he's created. He's put that in us too. And that's one of the ways that we reflect our creator is by appreciating and acknowledging and creating more beauty in the world. And I just think that's a cool, God allows us to enjoy him by enjoying the things that he's made and enjoying his people is just. And the things that make. Yeah. Like Mm -hmm. it just keeps going. Like, yes, I just love that. And I just, if you, if you even pull that ostrich passage out as an example but the way that he talks about all of those things in creation it's mm-hmm. a, it's like there's a joy and a delight in these like magnificent things that he's done mm-hmm. but pulling out that ostrich thing is he's basically like yeah i created it dumb but man look at it go right, you know it's like right not that i had he may not have had any greater purpose and that just it delighted him to make this dumb bird yeah this dumb yeah. fast bird you know yes. and, that, and that we as his people were created with that same delight and joy yep. and sometimes I think about like my son making these robots that do nothing special but like the joy and delight and creating this thing I mean I don't know what it says but isn't that cool like that's that like, cool yeah I, mean, I didn't create it except to just For enjoy a specific but it's this right cool thing you know and right yes just to be creative just to recognizing and to use those I love that idea that that is that is part of him. That is very mm-hmm. much a reflection of who he is. Piper was reading a book about an anteater yesterday and we were, she was laughing at it. Mom, his tongue is as long as my arm. And I said that to her. I was like, do you think God was laughing when he was making the anteater? Because <laughs> it's kind of just hilarious. Yes. I love to picture God laughing. Yeah. 
So going into Luke and John, I do love that we go straight from the end of the gospel right into the beginning of another one. Mm-hmm. Not, a, not just another one, but another one that's so different than the other three. John is completely different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke in so many ways. Same message, different details, but let's start with Luke. So one of the things I noticed in the beginning, well, what was our first chapter? Where are we? In 21, yeah, the first chapter for this week in Luke was something that has that tied back to what we've already talked about from Exodus and in Luke, where Jesus is saying that he's going to give his people the opportunity to bear witness. He's talking about the end of the age. And he says in verse 14, make up your minds not to prepare your defense ahead of time, for I will Mm -hmm. give you such words and a wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. And that promise has popped up already with Moses and him not being able to speak and God saying, I'm going to go with you and give you the words. And then in Luke 12, in verses 11 and 12, Um, Whenever they bring you before synagogues and rulers and authorities, don't worry about how you should defend yourselves or what you should say. The Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what must be said, which is cool because God has even given them the Holy Spirit yet at this point. And here Jesus is promising, like, don't worry about it. We've got this covered. I just love how that it's so practical. It's a promise, I think, that all of us, that applies to all of us as believers, because obviously we know we have the Holy Spirit and he's with us. His presence is always with us and he's going to speak through us anytime, no matter what. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just found a note where I wrote, huh, in my Bible. Um, <laughs> so did you notice also when Jesus is talking to Peter and he's telling him that he's going to deny him? Mm-hmm. This is in chapter 22. He says, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. What does that make you think of? That whole first scene in the beginning of Job where Satan basically goes before Mm -hmm. God. And he's basically, that's what Satan's asking God to do, to allow him to do for Job. Yes. And here Satan, Jesus is saying, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. It's like the same This can get a little tricky because all of our trials and tribulations are not a direct result of that whole scenario. I would say, can they go into two categories though? What do you mean? Would you say that like our trials and tribulations, I'm going to cut this. I wonder if your categories are what are in my head right now. Well, that he's either sifting us or he's disciplining us. Sometimes I feel like uh, when we we go through trials or tribulations, it's either because he's in the midst of it and he wants to draw our attention to him and he wants, he wants to take things off of us that we need in order to be more of who he created us to be. And he needs us to be, to do whatever the next thing is, or he's getting our attention because we are intentionally refusing to give up something that he's called us to give up. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like sometimes I feel, I kind of wonder whether, I don't know of any other category that trials and tribulations fit into. Well, and I think I just, it, it's such a big question too, because it also brings this whole, that whole um, God's sovereignty, man's responsibility. Right. He allows all of it. Yes. He does because God is in control. So he's sifting him. That's where mm-hmm. you were you were talking about. Him. Yes. So yeah, Jesus. Jesus predicts Peter's denial. And that just stuck out to me how that was similar to that first scene in Job. And then we go through that whole, the whole scene, the prayer in the garden and the betrayal and Peter denying the Lord. 
I also noticed too, did you notice that it tells us that the day like Herod and Pilate are going back and forth about Jesus, you know, mm-hmm. in 23 and, and that is what makes them be friends. Yes. Like they weren't friends before and yes, Jesus brings people together in the strangest ways. <laughs> <laughs> Just I was talking to a friend about this part where Peter denies Jesus three times. Okay. So Jesus says he's going to sift him or that Satan's going to sift him. He says, I've prayed for you in particular that you not give in or give out. This is my favorite. Like Jesus doesn't doubt that he's going to, that his prayer is going to be like, he knows the Mm -hmm. outcome. I've prayed for this. So when you have come through the time of testing, turn to your companions and give them a fresh start. Mm-hmm. And I, I guarantee you that when, that when Peter denied Jesus three times and Jesus looked at him, mm-hmm. the moment that it happened and Peter left and cried and cried and cried and cried, Peter didn't think there was a time he was going to come out of that. I guarantee that he had no recollection of Jesus saying, when you come out of it, he was in the midst of it going, I will never, ever, ever get over yeah. what I just did. Yeah. And, um, so I was talking to a friend about that moment where Jesus looks at Peter and how devastating that would have been. And she said, and I haven't looked it up, so I'm just sharing it because when she said it, I was like, that's so true to his character. It's such a great picture. So she said that she's, she had looked it up when she saw that phrase that Jesus looked at Peter. She went through some commentaries and she saw that that phrase looked at is like he took notice of. But more than that, like he took notice of with concern. And I just, to me, that changes the whole picture of Jesus. Like he's checking to see like, if he's okay. Yes. And yeah. for some reason, like the look to me was like, see, I told you. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm aware that this was going to happen when Jesus looked at him. It wasn't, why, why would I think in a million years that it would be to be Maybe like, con- I told you so. Right. Yeah. Or be, like, yeah. yeah, it would absolutely be like you're going to be okay. Like just great concern for him in that moment. Cause he knew that what had just happened and he knew that his heart was going to be broken. And Jesus is in the middle of his <laughs> trial before this, the, these people and his concern is for his best friend. Like it just, yeah, that is beautiful. Super moving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This made me excited to someday dig into Hebrews with dive collective. I always have said Hebrews is one of my favorite books, but to be honest, I don't think I've really, really studied it since college. But after Jesus dies in the end of 23, when it says that the curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, I mean, Hebrews talks about that a lot and kind of digs into the picture of what that is. But to me, like when you, when I see that the curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle, that's where I hear Jesus saying it is finished, which maybe in another gospel, it's like simultaneous, but like he's accomplished, he's accomplished it. Like it's done. This Mm -hmm. is what he came to do, right? He came to get rid of that separation between us and God and it's done. He did it. It's God giving us this physical, tangible picture of what he's doing spiritually in us and for us. And even thinking, I was thinking about this this week too, and I think it was related to something I was listening to, something I was listening to. And I don't know if it was a podcast or church sermon. I have no idea if it was on Sunday, but talking about how um, God's dwelling place up until that point had been 
You're talking was about it you? Facebook. I made the Facebook post. Yeah, it was a couple of weeks ago. I talked about how Moses did all the things. Like I, I did just as he was asked. He, Moses did just as he was told. Moses did just as he was told. Moses did just as he was told. And then as soon as he finished, uh, as soon as it says he was finished, then God came and entered the dwelling place and dwelt among them in that place. Like he hung the curtain and he- I did not dwelt. see that Facebook post. <clears throat> Are you sure? Yeah. Because this is because a little like bit word different. For word. Like it's dwelt, he came, he dwelt with, among them. And then Jesus came and he did what he was told, did what he was told, did what he was told, did what he was told. And then as soon as he said, it is finished, the curtain was rent and torn into, and then the spirit came and filled the world. Are you sure? No, I didn't see that Facebook post. And I was coming at it of a different angle too. Like just the fact that my train of thought is gone. The ta- just the fact that the tabernacle is where he dwelled. And I was thinking, I was listening to whoever I was talking, whoever was talking about this and reading through Exodus and how like, God's establishing all of this. And then even thinking about sometimes in my mind, when I think about Jesus in the gospels, it feels really, really far removed from Exodus, which it was. And yet they're still living under the law. They're still following all of those same things. Sometimes I forget that until this happens, God is still dwelling. His presence is still there in the temple. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Like that's where he was. Yeah. And in my head, it's just, there's such a big gap between this time frame and the Old Testament, which isn't really accurate at all. It makes me relate a little bit to the skeptics, you know, like Jesus is coming in and totally, completely changing everything that they've been taught Mm -hmm. and believed for thousands of years. And so it makes me a little bit sympathetic to the people who don't just drop everything and follow him right away because it's totally different and new. I think that's part of why I love the passage of Jesus on the road to Emmaus or or the disciples on the road to Emmaus after Jesus is raised from the dead. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that I find so lovely about that passage is that Jesus is explaining to them from the very beginning, they were all there. Mm -hmm. The curtain was torn. Yes. But like, there's no way we could, we could be expected to put all of those puzzle pieces together and go, okay, Jesus just fulfilled all of those things. And so Jesus on this road to Emmaus, where these disciples don't know who he is, and he's just talking to them and he opens the scriptures from, the, it says he opens the scriptures from the very beginning and they, it, he opens their eyes to how Jesus was the fulfillment of all of these things. He goes from the beginning of time, his patience to reveal these things to us. The expectation isn't that we just know it. We, it has to be revealed to us. And he reveals it to them so patiently and so graciously on the road to Emmaus that they kind of explaining it to all of them. And then they go to, well, first of all, Mary and like these women who just saw, G, it was just explained to them how he fulfilled it. It actually says, so the angels even explained to him, he's not here, but raised up. Remember how he told you when you were still back in Galilee that he had to be handed over to sinners, be killed on a cross and in three days rise up? Like that was way back. that wasn't just a chapter or two ago that was way back when they were still following him in Galilee so it's at least a week ago because he was in Jerusalem for a week like these angels and and then Jesus they explain these things they make these connections for them it's and he's so he does that patiently and graciously it's not just an expectation that we were supposed Mm -hmm. to just have it figured out it wasn't that the curtain was torn in two and everybody was going to understand now God's presence was was everywhere yeah Yeah, we get to we have the we have the benefit of one, the Holy Spirit and history to be able to right. and people to explain this to us. 
again, the road to Emmaus is so beautiful because of that. Okay, so then we go into John and everything is different. Mm-hmm. So Exodus, it's talking about Moses and the noblemen or whatever of Israel going up and seeing God, right? He's in there in his presence. They see him standing on that lapis lazuli or whatever it is. But then the very beginning of John tells us that no one has ever seen God. Indeed, we've all received grace upon grace from his fullness, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The one and only Son, who is himself God and is at the Father's side, has revealed him. Right, which makes you, that's where people go, like, is it Jesus? Like, right. was Jesus right. the one that was standing in their presence? At, yeah. Yeah. But Jesus know. doesn't take on human form until he comes. Anyway, that whole, that, well, I mean, there's a question of Jesus, like the angels, they're like, were the angels that came to visit right. Abraham, actually right. Jesus, because it's the priests of, yep. yeah, there's, yeah. Blah. Anyway, that, when I read that, I was like, oh, this will be fun to dig into. Um, I'm just going to read a couple of passages that were just beautiful from the message. Chapter one verses, I don't know, probably 10 through 13. He came to his own people, but they didn't want him. But whoever did want him, who believed he was who he claimed and would do what he said, he made to be their true selves, their child of God's selves. These are the God begotten, not blood begotten, not flesh begotten, not sex begotten. I feel like I've said a hundred times in this past month, if you believe that he is who he said he is and he's going to do what he said he's going to do, that's everything. That's mm-hmm. everything. It may, it lets us live this passive life. I'm trusting that you are who you said you are and I am who you, I, and you are going to do what you said you're going to do is that trusting. And there's a couple passages that make me think of that. Chapter one, verse 39. Well, first of all, I didn't realize I've never read this portion close enough to see that in all the other passages, Peter, Peter come, Peter follows Jesus first and then goes and gets his brother, Andrew. And in here, Andrew was a disciple of John the Baptist. Yeah. Did you have, it? was that kind of a first like for you too? Yeah. I, I read over that several times. Cause I was like, wait, and you yeah. know what else is interesting in John? I have this written down several times in here from the last time that I read it. All, like from the beginning, all of the disciples are like, oh, he's Jesus. Oh, he's the Messiah. Oh, we believe him. Yes. And this so like John time. makes it sound like they knew from the get-go yes. that Jesus was who he says he was. And the other ones make it sound like it takes forever for them to recognize him as the Messiah. Yes. And here Isn't Nathaniel, Nathaniel's the first one that says he's right. the Messiah in John. Right. Yeah. I clearly have not studied John very much. This Yeah. <laughs> we will have to do that one soon. Yeah. But, but this makes me think, okay, so like application wise, as I look at that, several of the gospels give Peter credit for being, calling him the Messiah first. This one says Nathaniel calls him the Messiah first. Like Peter was one of the first to get up and follow Jesus. But here it's Andrew. That's the first to get up and follow Jesus. And if I'm being frank, like completely human, honest, there are times when like, Somebody will say, today was a perfect example. When you said this thing about Moses and you didn't remember that like it was, even if it wasn't my post that you saw or that you were referencing, there are times when somebody will say something and I'll go, that was my revelation, you know, that, 
and we have this like possession over this thing mm-hmm. that like we have no possession over. It didn't right. matter to Peter whether like, or maybe it didn't matter to Peter, but it shouldn't have mattered. To, it, doesn't, right. it doesn't clearly does not matter in the gospels. Like right. if it mattered, then it would all be, it would be the same. If it yeah. mattered who gets credit for what, in, according to the word of God, then it would all be the same, mm-hmm. but it absolutely does not matter. And that is part of what I'm like, this has been my prayer this week, crucify my flesh, crucify mm-hmm. my flesh, crucify my flesh, crucify my flesh, because it does not matter. And I, Lord, let me not be glorified. Let you be glorified, be glorified, be glorified, mm-hmm. be glorified, be glorified. But I'm just now making this application. Like I'm yeah. reading this, this is directly from the word of God. None of anything that I'm ever going to say matters. has not been said before. Or like matters that you're saying it. Right, yes. like nothing. Okay, yeah. speaking of things that people have said before, go back and read John 1 to me again in the message, verse 12. I know it's not divided by verses, but that section that you read. Yeah, he came to his own people, but they didn't want him. But whoever did want him, who believed he was who he claimed and would do what he said, he made to be their true selves, their child of God's selves. These are the God begotten, not blood begotten, not flesh begotten, not sex begotten. Okay, so he made them to be their true selves. Mm-hmm. They're children of God's selves. That reminds me of what you have said about that we whole, like revealing the intentions of our hearts and like, yes. yeah, like being able to see who we were created to be before the brokenness, yes. being able to see the beauty for what it is. That we were poured perfectly. Like when he yeah. created us, he created us, our souls, everything perfectly. Mm-hmm. And then we entered in the world and were covered in sin mm-hmm. and in Jesus's righteousness like that's what he sees. He, like I, and I, yes, like this is, so this is a perfect example of why it doesn't matter. Because when I said, said that however many years ago, I'm not going to say it again. Like I've already said it. It's, I mean, I might say it again, but I'm never going to say it again the way that I said it that first time Do you know yeah. what I mean? because it's already been said. So mm-hmm. for you to come back and say again, what I need to hear that again. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it, and it, and there's a whole new group of people that have never heard that. And I'm mm-hmm. not going to say it again. Mm-hmm. If it's true and if it's his word and it, it gets to go forth again, whether it comes from my mouth well, or somebody else's, that's and it's his word. If it comes from someone else's mouth, you're accomplishing the goal of why you put it out in there in the first place, because you're the point yeah. of why you said that was for it to like ring true to people. Right. Yes. And so like, it's actually one of those things that I was always like, there was something about the wording that I was like, little like if you take this too far, it could end up not being biblical. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, and I don't need, I can't, I don't remember exactly, but I, but I knew, like, I understood the concept. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like they, I got what you were saying and it's true. Like it's beautiful. And now hearing that interpretation of scripture, say it that way reminded me of something that you taught me that was true. You know what I mean? If someone else is repeating back what you're saying, it's because you've accomplished the goal. It's because you, through what you have said, someone knows God in a different way. You know, and you know, what's occurring to me is that the truth is, is that if I actually go back, I think that that was an evolution of a truth that I think my mom even spoke to me when she was teaching something. It's not like it's, Nobody has yeah. ownership over God's yeah. truth. <laughs> oh yeah. God, it's my humanity and it's yeah. ugly, but he knows what to do with it. 
But yeah, so that particular scripture, going back to what you were saying, I think that for me, I had always seen it. I had always seen it as though when I go before God, I'm wrapped in Jesus, that like Mm -hmm. God sees Jesus when he sees me because of Jesus' sacrifice. And I feel like that- Well, I remember saying, okay, I remember having this conversation with you because maybe I remember this totally wrong, but Mm -hmm. I remember when we were talking about it, you were saying- that Jesus sees like the perfect us that he created. And my argument was what you're like, no, he sees Jesus. Like we're wrapped. He, when he looks at us, he sees Jesus, but you were like, well, no, I mean, he does see Jesus. We're wrapped in Jesus righteousness. But like when Jesus looks at me, he sees like the perfect me, not just Jesus standing in front yes. of me. And it's like this both and thing. Yes. Like the reason that God sees it's almost like a window. It's almost like he puts himself yeah, between yeah, us so that through right. the filter of Jesus's righteousness, g- what God sees is that creation that delights him, that ostrich mm-hmm. that he's like, I mean, right. it's kind of crazy, but man, it's cool. You know, like right. he just loves our God, our true God selves that was begotten by him before mm-hmm. we were, before we entered into this fallen world. Mm-hmm. There is a version of us that absolutely delights him and mm-hmm. we get to go before him because of G- because Jesus goes before because us of Jesus. Him. Right. Yes. And he sees that version of us that absolutely delights him. Yes. Yeah. And I just never saw it that way before. And I, that's a really great reminder. Really yeah. great reminder. Yeah. So, <clears throat> which kind of ties in, oh my goodness, we should stop talking. <laughs> it ties into that whole, that whole passive thing you've been talking about. And that song that's been playing through my head literally for weeks, rest easy. You don't have to do it. It's already done. You're already mine. I already see you through Jesus's yeah. righteousness. Like I'm already seeing this perfect creation that I created you to be. Yeah. Chill out and just love me because I love you. Yes. So in John three sixteen is it the way that it says it in here? Um, this is how much God loved the world. He gave a son, his one and only son, and this is why, so that no one needs be destroyed. By believing in him, anyone can have a whole and lasting life. God didn't go to all the trouble of sending his son merely to point an accusing finger, telling the world how bad it was. He came to help, to put the world right again. Anyone who trusts in him is acquitted. Anyone who refuses to trust in him has long since been under the death sentence without knowing it. And why? Because of that person's failure to believe in the one of a kind son of God when introduced to him. It's that simple. Mm -hmm. He didn't come to point an accusing finger to tell us how we should live. He came to live it for us. Mm -hmm. And all we have to do is trust that he is who he said he is Mm -hmm. and he would do what he said he would do. And I love that all of that follows John reminding us about Moses and the snake in the wilderness and all they had to do to live was to look at the snake, like mm. just look and live. And so Jesus, that's what he's compared. That's what yes. John is tying Jesus right back into that. Just look and live. That's all you have to do. So good. Yeah. Believe that yes. that is enough and it's done completely done. Yes. I mean, there's a lot in John that I would talk about but that Mm. seems like a great place to end Mm -hmm. look and live look and live so that wraps up our march 13th episode of the recap and we'll see you next week 
If you enjoyed this discussion and maybe you're wondering how to get more highlights out of your own scripture reading, you might be interested in joining our in-depth dive studies where we model our process of inductive Bible study. You can find out more at divecollective.org under the studies tab. And we will see you next week.